0: Well, amen. Awesome choices, Melissa. That, uh, that is some good reminders for us. Uh, I always love that last line, a beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years and the ability to have vision beyond what we may see today and, and the mending of our nation. And I think there's hope. I, I uh, looked at a uh, news entry today and I saw a very encouraging picture. I mean, encouraging is relative given our times, but there was, a, um, there was a riot control officer surrounded by a mob of people left kind of to himself. Somehow he had slipped out of the ranks or something. And, and uh, instead of being harmed and, and injured... Um, uh, a number of people from the crowd linked arms together and, and made a protective barrier for him while he could uh, await assistance. And so, um, you know, seeing only a lot of the negative bad news out there, it's it's nice to know that um, the there is a, a stream of, of good in individuals that want to see uh, healing. And we'll continue to, to pray for that as well. Well, um if you wouldn't mind making your way to the book of 1st John and we're going to continue with a verse that we have um, allowed to serve as kind of a a foundation verse for us and and that is 1st John uh, chapter 4 and verse 8 where God is declared to actually be love now we've been uh, working through the attributes of God and uh, it's interesting when you study the attributes of God, you kind of begin to see them everywhere. Has that been the case for you? You see them especially in our music. You see uh, music that is written well. Even, you know, the first song that we sang this morning as well, could you see all of the attributes of God coming uh, from that music? And, and I've sung that song many times, but then, you know, even having taught the attributes of God a few times, it's, uh, it's interesting when you start to see it coming out of, uh, you know, music that has been... Thought through and and uh, as well as in your personal readings, I trust. So um, we're on the attribute of love this morning, and this is a uh, as we said last week, uh, a very fascinating attribute of God. It's it's um, it's quite an endearing attribute, and I hope that you are um, in our time thus far. I hope that you've been able to begin to assess your own understanding of. God's love for you and your love uh, for others. But uh, love, no doubt, is an endearing attribute, not only as ascribed to God, but as ascribed to man. And it's seen in many things also in our music. It has been estimated that over 60% of songs on the Billboard online archives are written about love. And over 1 million documented songs have been written about love as well or love and relationships and the variety there is staggering when you look at it And you turn on the radio and uh, more than half of the songs that you hear each day are about love in fact it, in the words of Paul McCartney some people want to fill the world with silly love songs <laughs> and what's wrong with that he'd like to know because uh, here he goes again, and uh, while it's endearing, what what can be wrong with that can be, uh, is that uh, love is often misunderstood, is it not? And and love, there are false views of love, love of God. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love man? That uh, entangle our thinking. And so last week we spent uh, an entire. Uh, message untangling some of that and looking into what the biblical view and understanding of love is and and we said that that God defines love by his own standard as he himself being love 1 john four eight it is our text this morning, and that this is more than just a characteristic of God, this is what he is and what he does, who he is. and we looked at several characteristics of the love of God. Last week we said that his love is eternal. That should not surprise us because it comes from an eternal God. And if God is eternal, then his attributes are eternal and his love is eternal. It does not stop. It is not temporary like like man's love is. The love of God is also personal, we said, in that it is directed towards people. You remember Zephaniah 3.17, He will exalt over you. Uh, He will renew you. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And this is our God directing that love like a laser beam towards his children whom he loves. We also saw that God's love is volitional. That is a big word to say. It is rooted in his will. It is rooted in his choice. He is deliberate about his love. It is not random love that just kind of rolls off of his shoulders. It is directed through his will, through his choice. And you remember also, and I don't know if you brought your notes back. I think there's some extras there. Same notes we're, just going, we're picking up from last week. But that interesting uh, relationship between the four loves of the Greek language, eros and storge and phileo and agape, and we concluded with the scriptures that agape is that highest love, That unselfish love. And you'll recall we closed with that interesting interplay between Peter and Jesus. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? And yes, Lord, I love you. But he could not bring himself to say that most ultimate use of the agape love. But we concluded that he did later learn that. So I want to begin this morning with three more elements as we conclude this attribute of God's love. God's love is eternal, and it is personal, and it is volitional. But if you're uh, still taking notes, I'd like you to write down, fourthly this morning, that the love of God is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. Now, the idea for the love of God always has a sacrificial element attached with it. it. It is always connected to... God giving himself. In fact, if you remember our definition, love is the attribute of God whereby he discloses an intimate knowledge of himself and willfully gives himself for the purpose of a relationship. He wants a relationship with mankind. And so he gives himself for the purpose of this relationship. And his gift is sacrificial. And sacrifice is intimately and eternally connected to love. And our our definition spoke of this, but um, it is so different from our love because oftentimes we love, do we not, for what we can get. Often man's love is this way. He commits to love. He commits to a relationship. He'll even commit to a marriage so long as that marriage serves his purposes or her purposes. We love for what we can get. God loves, on the other hand, for what He can give. That's why He enters into relationships, not to see what He can get out of those relationships, but to see what He can pour into those relationships and invest into them. And so we're defining our, our even our own understanding of this word "love. When we say we love one another, when we use that term, does it have an element of sacrifice attached to it? God's love is costly. In fact, and your love will be costly if it is biblical love. I love the title of Elizabeth Elliott's book. You may have it on, on your shelves. Love has a price tag. It's a fascinating little book, and it talks about the fact that if you're going to truly love somebody, there's going to be a cost associated with that love. It does not come for free. Love is sacrificial. It is that which seeks the highest good for the object love. And God's love is not mere talk, it's action, it's sacrifice, and as a result it is centered on others. And we are simply the beneficiaries of this. It reminds me of Abraham when he was sacrificing his only son, and God called him to to that sacrifice. And God really rubbed it in by saying, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and There's going to be a cost here, Abraham. And of course, God was testing him, but this was a picture of what God did for us in his own gift of his own son to us. And so, as we look at some scriptures that talk about this sacrifice, the first thing that comes to my mind is John 3.16, right? John 3.16, which we use so frequently and rightfully so, that God so loved the world that he had an amazing emotion for it. Is that what it says, or, or that God so loved the world that He was, that He was just overflowing in sentiment for the world, or that God so loved the world that He gave that one and only unique Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world to the point that He gave that one and only Son, that that Son in whom He loves. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or John 15, 13, no greater love has any man that he lay down his life for his friends. And I call you my friends, Jesus says. And so here Jesus is speaking of his pending death, that this is the purpose for which I've come to manifest the love of God in myself and give myself a, a ransom for many Galatians two twenty. later Paul speaks of this I have been crucified with Christ that is to say in some mystical miraculous way when Christ was on the cross I was on the cross and that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that live and Christ lives in me but the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You, you, you will never see in Scripture this, this um, strange view of love that often is seen in the world where it's just, well, I love you. Well, it's just, I, I just love you. I just want to tell you that. It's always connected with some action on the part of the person who would commit to that level of relationship. He loved me. And he gave himself up for me. And this issues forth in such a response on our part. It, I mean, at a minimum, when we say those words, I love you, we should ask ourselves, what what price are we paying to have that relationship with the person that we say those words to? Because if love has a price tag, and if we're using that term, then what is the cost? What is your love costing you right now for Anybody that you do love. What is your commitment to that person that you love? And is it reflected and modeled after what we see in the Lord Jesus? And so we see that this element of love must have a sacrifice attached to it. There's another very important component of a biblical understanding of the love of God. And that is the love of God is also ethical. Would you put that in your, your blank on number five? That the love of God is an ethical love. And this helps us cut through that undergrowth that J.I. Packer spoke about, about how many, how many false notions and false views of the love of God come out. That God's love is an ethical love. It is rooted in his ethics. It is rooted in his justice and his righteousness. God's love is rooted, note this, in his holiness. It is connected to his holiness. This speaks of the simplicity of God. We didn't study this as an attribute. We certainly could. But the simplicity of God is simply this. While God is amazingly complex in all of his attributes, all of his attributes fit together and make simple sense, and they relate to one another. They connect to one another. And so you cannot have a maverick attribute you, you cannot have a, an attribute of God that's running around doing its own thing, completely separated from all the other attributes. They're woven together. They're knitted together in the being of God. That's his simplicity. He's simply one God. But the reality is when we speak of love, this is the first attribute that people try to excise away from all of his other attributes. Well, a God of love would never do this. Or well, a God of love has to do this. And they do not speak of his love in relation to his holiness. But ladies and gentlemen, this morning we need to conclude that God's love is a holy love. God's love is an ethical love. God's love is a righteous love. God's love is intimately connected to justice. He doesn't just pour out love on people while ignoring our ethical dilemma. And this is so very important. Because some people say, well, God's love will just take care of everything for me. And yet, while there is truth to that, the fact remains is that that does not mean you can just remain in your sin and say, well, God's just going to love me. Paul asks this question. He says, shall we sin then to see more grace so that grace would abound? And he says, may it never be, some of the strongest language used. We need to understand that if we're going to be speaking of biblical love, that it is an ethical love. Now, let me show you this with the scriptures. Psalm 11.7 uh, says this, God loves righteousness. God loves righteousness. In Isaiah 61.8 it says, God loves justice. God loves justice. I think it's interesting to see here that, that, that the aspect of love is intimately connected to righteousness, Psalm 11.7, and that the aspect of love is intimately connect, uh, connected to justice, Isaiah 61.8. And it should be no surprise to us then in Ephesians 4 and verse 15 that you and I are to speak the truth in love. We are to speak the truth, but it must be intimately connected to love. There is a connection here to ethics. Love has to be directed ethically. I'll never forget the time that I was uh, working through an issue with a young couple who were um, living together. They were not married, but they were pretending to be married. They were playing house. And I began to speak to them about this issue and um, began to work through them, with them, a, a biblical understanding of relationships. And, and we came to the point where um, they, uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. And, and, and here's the interesting thing that, that uh, one of them said, they, they spoke in defense of this relationship that they were in, and they said, I, I told them God's standards, God's expectations with respect to this, and that love is, has an ethical element here, and, and, and before I had said that they said, but, but, but we, and you could probably finish it, we love each other, we love each other, so how can what feels so good be wrong? Uh, and and so there's this aspect that people have but 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 we love each other and that should just you know cover everything else and i i showed them the the error with that in first corinthians thirteen six, and you know first corinthians 13 that's the love chapter love is patient love is kind long suffering all of all of the aspects of love, and you will note that when you come to verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices in the truth. So don't think that that by having a God who is love, that he somehow pulls himself from all of his other attributes, especially his truth and, and righteousness. If you, if you love each other, you will not rejoice in this unrighteousness, um relationship. I also brought them to 1st Thessalonians 4 where it says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So after all of this long conversation, those were the last words that I spoke to this couple to this day. And and there are just some who who so do not understand that that there's this ethical side of love. Hebrews 12:6 even addresses our Parenting. It says, "For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and uh, and those He cares for, He scourges." And and this is the this is God's discipline of His children, but it has a parental impact on us as well, right? Um, you've you've often heard the phrase, um, "He who spares the rod." Uh, well, the common the common one is spoils the child, right? Uh, not from the Bible, again. Also from Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> uh, he who, he who uh, spares the rod spoils the child. So good in its intent, but uh, completely false. The scripture actually says he who spares the rod hates his child. Such strong language there. And the, the fact remains is that it's an image of what God does for his children whom the Lord loves he disciplines he trains and he brings us into conformity with that ethic and uh, J.I. Packer here comments again scripture does not allow us to suppose that because God is love we may look to him to confer happiness on people who will not seek holiness or to shield his loved ones from trouble when he knows that they need trouble to further their sanctification that's that's something important to remember Especially when you encounter trouble. Trouble comes as a result of God moving you further and strengthening you and, and making you a, a better person than you were before the trouble came. And so, in addition to um, not conferring happiness on people who don't seek holiness, it's this aspect of trouble which advances our, our sanctification as well. And so, this, this, is under, this causes us to understand that His love is sacrificial and it's ethical. And I want to give you one last one this morning here. And that is the love of God. And this is probably my favorite. The love of God is unconditional. It is unconditional. It is eternal. It will last forever. It is personal. It's yours if you know God through the Lord Jesus. It is volitional. It is His choice. It is sacrificial. It is His Son ethical, it is rooted in righteousness, but, but one of the most profound concepts is that God's love is unconditional. It is unconditional. And this is so hard for us to fathom sometimes, because we operate constantly on conditions, right? That's what contracts are for. That's what litigation in our day is for. We operate solely sometimes on conditions of the other person's performance. And we, we, um, we love... If others love us. And, and we accept when, when we are accepted. And, and so if you're pretty enough, and if you're nice enough, and if I like you enough, and if you behave properly, then I will love you. And, and, it, and if you love me, I will love you back. If you're nice to me, I will be nice to you back. But if you fail me, And if you harm me, and if you reject me, then I will withhold my love from you. That's typically how we we act and live. And, And you don't deserve my love now. You haven't earned my love. And partly, that logic is correct. Because if you think of love being unconditional, who can earn love? Who can earn especially the love of God? Who can say that, that uh, I have been good enough? I've been pretty enough. I've behaved well enough that now God loves me. God, God accepts me now because of my, my actions. That, that is rooted in, in a false religion of works righteousness. That's conditional love. I'll love you if you love me. I'll bring 50% into this marriage. How's that sound? Pretty good deal, right? Because you'll make up the other 50%. But you see, unconditional love says, no, I'll bring 100%. I'll bring 1,000%. I'll carry this entire marriage myself if I have to because I love you. Now you imagine two Christian believers coming into a relationship like that. Which marriage would you want? Would you want that 50-50 which really often turns into 20-20? I mean, or would you want something that says, I vow before God and men to love you and give my entire self for you, and carry the whole load if I have to. Two people carrying the whole load is, is quite a recipe for success when it comes to marriage. And that's God's love. And it's no wonder, folks, why God says, you, the church, are my bride. You, uh, the bride of Christ, as it were. That, that you are, are, we are the bride. And don't think for a moment that we ourselves could carry this entire relationship, but God comes to us and he does so. Yet, it, yet we are involved. Now, why, why is this so? This is, this is this unconditional love of God. Praise God that we bring nothing to the table here, but, but uh, preconditions are, are really what, what stifle any relationship. How does God do this? Wh- what is it rooted in? I, I want you to look... Um, I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you will. I want to show you some amazing um, scripture where God comments on this very issue. In Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, he declares Israel as a holy people. He says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. You see the personal nature here. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God is saying that there was a lot of people to choose from. I chose you to be my holy, unique possession. And in verse 7 it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, or choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But, note verse 8, Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and, here's our word, Hesed, His loving kindness to a thousand generations. And later he speaks about how this turns us into people who keep covenant back and, and who respond and, and who are obedient and who are that holy people. But I want you to note verse 7 here. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number, but actually, verse 8, because the Lord loved you. You say, well, what kind of logic is that? The Lord has set his love upon you. Why? Because he loved you. Wait a minute. You loved me because you love me? That's right. I, I, I set my love upon you for the sole purpose of me loving you. this is a fascinating concept here and it shows us the unconditional nature of the love of God. It is rooted in Himself for reasons perhaps known only to God. And, And explanations that defy our human logic, God loves us. Why did He love you? Because you were so good looking? Because you were so smart? So intelligent? So capable? So gifted? Oh, I know why He loved you, because He needed you for His kingdom, right? No, He didn't. Now, he uses us for his kingdom. I always, I always chuckle when I hear of like, well, well, that athlete or that movie star, wouldn't it be great if he or she became a Christian? God really needs people like that. And the platform that they... Does he really? Or does God have a completely different economy in mind here when it comes to, to manifesting his love towards mankind? And it is a privilege that we get to be used by God But we need to think clearly about this issue of love. We didn't do anything to earn it, and we didn't do anything to keep it. Because God's love is eternal, and personal, and volitional, and sacrificial, and ethical, and unconditional, note this, God's love for you is secure. It is secure. And you are secure in God's love. I want to show you something here also, if you don't mind turning to Romans chapter 8, and verse 35. Romans 8, it really uh, speaks to this issue. I want to be gentle here because there are different um, theological histories where different people come from and, and just your own personal walk. You may be all at different places in your walk, but I want to give you the confidence that if you are born again and if you are a new creature in Christ and that you know the The Father through the Son. I want you to know that your relationship with God, with Christ, is secure. That it's solid and it's rooted in the love of God and the love of Christ. Look at Romans 8.35. Paul addresses this issue here, especially under persecution that sometimes we find ourselves in. In Romans 8.35, he asks the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to to be slaughtered. But in all of these things, all of the distresses that can face you in your Christian walk, and in your relationship with God, and by the way, a good relationship with God will probably get you into more trouble than not having a relationship with God. I think some of you have learned that to be true. But in all of these things, we are over. uh, The word in the Greek is uh, super conquerors, hyper conquerors. We are major conquerors through him who, here it is again, loved us. Note the love of God, love of Christ in verse 35. He loved us in verse 37 and verse 38. For I am convinced, I love this verse, I am convinced. Showing here a, a a mental resolve that the Apostle has. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see this amazing connection between the love of god and the love of christ in verse 35 it says the love of christ in verse 39 it says the love of god and in verse 37 it says him who loved us and then it says in verse 39 it speaks of the love of god but also which is in christ jesus our lord and so you, you can't separate the love from the trinitarian aspects of this as well and i could prove that that the spirit is also involved in this but but you see, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love. And sometimes people will say, oh yeah, Eli, you're right. I mean, it does say a lot of things there. Nakedness and peril and distress and persecution. None of those things can separate you from Christ. But what about you? What about you? You probably could do this, right? Because after all, it was, it was your choice to become part of this love of God. And I just simply say, I just ask the question when that is asked, well, are you a created thing? Well, yeah. Well, it says here that nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And so if you're a created thing, then it would suggest that even that is somehow insulated and somehow protected by this unconditional love of God. The love of God is unconditional. And this could enter into a a large discussion of different things, but we won't take time for that today. I just want want to say that as we look at the unconditional love of God, the unconditional love of Christ... And, and as we look at the fact that we've been crucified with Him and that we are in Him and that He is in us, and that is not a temporary relationship. That is a permanent relationship. And so that becomes the basis now for how we love others. And I want to challenge you this morning that, that we, if you're not already there, that we begin to see love in the biblical light of, as being unconditional. And that God has loved us with these with no conditions attached. And he has moved towards us in a relationship with, with nothing that we bring to the table. And so as a result, husbands and wives, and you, you know where I'm going here, how do you love one another? How, how do you love your husband's wives when they are unlovable? And unlovable we are at times, are we not? But it goes both ways as well, husbands. How do you love your wives when they are unlovable, or when they are difficult to love, we should have an unconditional aspect. How about moms and dads? How about moms and dads as we look at our children and how our children can sometimes be a a frustration for us and sometimes a disappointment for us as they grow and as they make their own decisions from their own choice? How, how How do we show love or do we distance ourselves from them? I mean, I'm talking to myself here today. It's so much easier to allow disappointment in our children to cause barriers and to distance ourselves and become further and further. And yet this whole thing is about relationships, is it not? That God loves us unconditionally for the purpose of being with us in a relationship. And so how can we dare claim the love of God when we have distanced ourselves from God and and been a disappointment to Him and and upset him many times no doubt but does he just stop one day and say no nope, too many times they've they've let me down too many times and how about siblings brothers and sisters as well who ought to love one another and how about church mates church mates who can try each other's patience i've seen it on elder boards i've seen it in pastoral staff i've seen it in congregational membership meetings ridiculous ridiculous bickering fighting i want this i want it to be that way i want it to sound this way i want it to look this way and church members who claim to receive the love of god and who claim to love one another they fight each other and they bite each other and they chip away at each other and paul warned of this he says be careful be careful because if you chew each other up enough you will consume one another and these are real warnings here. These are people who have failed to ever understand or have drifted from a biblical understanding of the unconditional love of God. And this is a challenge to us, is it not? This is a, this is a high challenge to love as God loves and to love as, as Christ loves. Well, we need to conclude this uh, attribute of God. I want to just ask the uh, so what question again as we conclude. We could go a lot of different places with this, but uh, I want to just go to Matthew 22 and verse 36 as we conclude our message this morning. Uh, This uh, Matthew 22 speaks of a, a time when Jesus was approached by a lawyer. And in verse 35 it says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. He said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Jesus answers the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God. He he other places said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so would you put that down in our first response today that, that we should first and foremost display a genuine love for our God. And fearing I would be out of time, I just wrote these notes in for you today. You can kind of just let your eye glance across them and maybe study them later here. What a genuine love for God looks like. Well, it means that we pursue a personal relationship with Him. That He has pursued a a relationship with us, so we pursue a relationship with Him. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life. That they may know God, the true God and Jesus whom he has sent. And so if we say we understand and love God, it means that we are in a constant, daily, never-ending pursuit of a personal relationship with him, that we may know him, and we know him through his word, we know him through prayer, we know him as he's manifested in others who have him living in him. That's why we gather for fellowship. It's a, it's a relationship here. I've always said that that Christianity is the only religion that is not a religion. I mean, it's a religion in a formal sense. In a philosophical sense, it is in the category of religion. But it is the only religion that is rooted in relationship and that God loves us and that we love God. It, we understand also as part of this relationship that He first loved us. Uh, 1 John 4:19 says that we love Him not because we were so smart and we figured it out. Not because, you know, we, we, we worked so hard to get this relationship and now we're, we're working so hard to earn this relationship. We love Him because He first loved us. It's a very natural re, uh, relationship. It's a very, it just flows from love. As a result of displaying this genuine love for God, we also worship Him. John 4.24, it's so interesting when you really look for what God is looking for. John 4, 24, God the Father seeks worshipers, Jesus said, who worship him in spirit and truth. He just wants worship. He just wants praise. He just wants thanksgiving. And that also a a relationship because of the ethical nature of love. We we should also obey his commands. if, If you say you love me, Jesus even asked this, why do you say Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? So there is some ethics there. It does... Require uh, um, a relationship that honors obedience, John fourteen fifteen, and um, we also live for His glory. That we see our lives, if we're truly displaying a love for God, that we we view our lives as that which brings glory to God, and we want to bring maximum glory to God. So we live for His glory. This is why 2 Corinthians five thirteen, Paul says, the love of God constrains us. It's God's love that produces in us action, and it constrains us to live for his glory. And loving God also includes refusing to love the world, does it not? Because Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. And so, if you love the world, actually, James says you're an enemy of God. So you're going to have to make your choice whether you're going to become a worldling or whether you're going to become a child of God. But if you say that you're going to be a child of God, there is a slow but sure separation that has to occur between you and the world. You cannot have a love relationship with God and a love relationship with the Lord Jesus while you're loving the world and everything that the world has to offer. It is fading away. It is dissipating before our very eyes. And we, 1 Corinthians 2.12, have received a spirit not of the world. And so, those are aspects that can display a genuine love for God. But in this text of Matthew here, this this conversation with the uh, lawyer continues. And it says, The second is like it. That's the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Assuming you love yourself is what it's saying here. And we do, we all love ourselves. We all prioritize ourselves. We all cherish ourselves. Paul said this in Ephesians 5, and we're we're to now direct this to others. And Jesus says that we are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so obviously, secondly, not only should we display a genuine love for God as far as an application here, but we should display a genuine love for man. And here's where the, the real challenge comes in. Because I can love God. I, can, I don't love Him as I ought to. But listen, He's the most perfect being in the universe. Who ought not to love Him, right? But now you're really fouling with things when you tell me that I need to love imperfect beings of this universe, of which there are so many, and so many different manifestations of that imperfection, right? I mean, in a sense although it's impossible, I would first stand in line to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But now, to love you as I love myself, that's a challenge. That is difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's where, as Elizabeth Elliott's book suggests, love has a price tag there. Love is going to cost there. And so I suggested a few things here in the notes of how we can display a genuine love for man i felt first and foremost we can give the gospel to the lost right matthew 28 speaks about that to go into all the world what what greater love could we express to fellow man than to give him or her the gospel that's really the 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 most loving gift you could ever offer somebody is sharing the truth of christ with them but from there we can also extend help to the needy and to and and be impartial James speaks about true religion is to help the widows and help the poor and and the the uh, the orphans of society, and this aspect also of impartiality. because again, even in church, sometimes we can say, "Oh, well, this person has a lot of money. Remember James was talking about this person walks in, and oh, you see the golden ring and the nice, fancy robe, and oh let let's let these guys sit up front, and by the way, front or back, it could be anywhere in the congregation. back then, the front was reserved for the highest ranking and most influential and and uh, you know spiritual. I'm using air quotes here of the congregation and so oh, oh, you come up here but the motive is the money the motive is the standing in the community and what you what you can bring to us here and while this poor guy over here while you just sit over there you can you don't have as much to offer and yet he says has not God chosen the poor of this world and, and so this element here of extending help to the needy and being impartial. And isn't this issue of impartiality part of what gets us into trouble in, in America and in the world in general right now? That's what this whole argument is about today is impartial treatment, unfair treatment. And God calls us to love all men all women, and to treat them impartially regardless of their race or gender or ethnicity or financial standing or you fill in the blank. Doesn't matter what they bring or what they don't bring. Love for man is all of those elements and we are to be impartial. We are to be hospitable to strangers, First Timothy 3. This is a qualification of elders. This is a qualification of elders who, by the way, are simply examples to the flock. They are simply to be examples to others. And, and, and maybe we'll talk about this at another time, but hospitality to strangers is not, you know, um, making fancy meals and home decor and all of those things. Hospitality to strangers, uh, uh, it, it means to love strangers is what that word means. It means to love people who you probably wouldn't love. You don't know them. You, they're different than you. And you wouldn't naturally fall into a relationship with them. Well, that's right. Love is not natural. And love reaches out to people who you wouldn't normally reach out to. That's what that word means. We love fellow Christians. John 13, 35 says that uh, by, all wor- by, all- by this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. In fact, it was Francis Schaeffer who says this is the mark of the Christian. This is the stamp. This is the brand of of our trade as Christians, that we love one another. We love our spouses and we love our families. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands. We could go there. Husbands loving their wives. Titus 2 talks about uh, wives loving their husbands and loving their children. And then finally, the hardest of all would be our Lord's call for us to love our enemies. This is all just fellow man. This is all under the topic of just genuine love for man, that that we need to love our, even our enemies. And this is, uh, this is difficult, but it's modeled for us by Jesus himself. You may remember that Jesus himself, Paul speaking of what Jesus did for us in Romans 5, says, while we, were, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his, here it is, love for us. And that's agape. God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so we model that same love for God, uh, for man, that God has lo- uh, given for us in that we love our enemies. And then as, uh, it is at the end of that little encounter with the, the, uh, the attorney there. That Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You can put basically the whole word of God and you you can rest it upon two things. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And all of this stems from the eternal, personal, volitional, sacrificial, ethical and unconditional love of God. Well, I hope you're challenged today. I hope you see the love of God in a new light and that we have a lot of uh, homework to do, do we not? It's a tall order to love God and to love man. Two little simple commandments there, but it touches a lot of different things in our life, does it not? Well, let's uh, stand and close. And uh, I just want to close announcing that I rejoice that we will next week um, be going back to two services. And I I just want to thank you for your flexibility here. And we've... We've adjusted and we've made, made do during this challenging course and time that we're in. Um, and I, I rejoice to getting back to, um, you know, a, a couple more elements of our service as well. And, and that reflect our, our love for our God as, as we worship him. So uh, look forward to seeing you next week as well and, and, uh, and uh, having more people uh, together in one place as well. So let's pray uh, as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we, um, oh, we just rejoice in who you are, and we, we just uh, humble ourselves before you knowing that, boy, the higher and higher and bigger and bigger you get, the, the more and more we feel our smallness and our, and our insignificance, and that's not a bad thing, Lord. Uh, that, that has given me strength in some mysterious way that the lower I go and, and the smaller I see myself, the the bigger as, as i look at you and the bigger you get and and lord so we just rejoice that you've given us a place where we can know you and study your word and all of your glorious glorious attributes all of them fascinate us all of us uh, all of your attributes reveal just a, a portion of who you are and lord thank you that we can reach down and and study you deeply and may these uh, truths about you really dig deep into our hearts lord i've even seen it in my own life in the music in my own reading and i just see things differently when i see the attributes of god so i pray that you continue in the in the few more that we have left and lord help us when we are short-sighted help us when we uh, fail you and when we fail each other lord you offer us ready forgiveness and may we also offer that same forgiveness to those who fail us and lord may we be like you as a result Father, as we continue in our week, give us opportunities to show love and manifest it to one another and to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.